invite you to turn in your Bible with me tonight to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, we're going to be looking at chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. But I'm going to begin reading at chapter 3, verse 18, so we get a sense of the, of the context here. 1 Peter, then we're going to begin reading chapter 3, verse 18, and we'll be looking at chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. The title for my message this evening is A Call to Arms. <clears throat> a Call to Arms. Let's pick it up. First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 18. This is God's Word. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And so uh, we looked at this last time and noted that... uh, is a bit of an intricate text, but the basic idea being that Jesus Christ has accomplished our, um, our victory. He is the ark that brings us uh, out of um, sin and death. He's the one that reconciles us to God. We are saved. And so baptism is a sign of God's, God's pledge of a pure conscience to you, that your sins are washed away. Uh, when you think of the rainbow, when Noah uh, climbed out of the ark finally and God gave a rainbow, the rainbow was not... Noah's pledge to God, it was God's pledge to Noah of uh, the covenant that God had made with him. And baptism is God's pledge to us of the uh, covenant he's made with us in Jesus Christ. And uh, we have a clear conscience because of it. So Paul is just rooting us in the reality of Jesus Christ. And now he's going to call us to live there. So chapter 4, verse 1. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Let's bow our heads and ask his blessing on the word tonight. Well, God in heaven, thank you for our brother Peter. I thank you, Lord, that you use this man, weak in so many ways, and yet, Lord, a servant and an apostle, laying the foundation of the church. I thank you that we can turn to his words tonight, inspired by the Spirit of Christ, and we pray that tonight we would see Jesus in his beauty, in his glory, in his sufficiency for sinners like us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
few, a few years ago, I um, came across an article written by a, a journalist who had gone to Afghanistan in the, uh, at really at the height of the war there with the Taliban, and uh, he, he noted that life in Afghanistan was what he uh, figured life in the Wild West must have been like. Everyone carried a gun. And not just a Colt 45 a neatly tucked into a holster, but, but people walked around with fully loaded AK-47s, and this was everywhere. When they went shopping, when they went into restaurants, when they walked down the streets, they're carrying a fully loaded AK-47. And one of the men that he interviewed there said that, that his gun was, in fact, his very best friend. It was his only protection, and that without it, he was uh, certain to be attacked and assaulted in some way. If you wanted to survive, you needed to be armed. Well, that's a helpful metaphor for the Christian life. Peter um, reminds us of a fact that we do tend to forget, and, and that is that we are in a spiritual war zone. The devil does prowl about seeking whom he may devour, and he does shoot his arrows of temptation. And the world is constantly uh, throwing temptation in our path and urging us to think like them, to act like them, uh, to be like them. I was uh, driving home, as I said, from Chicago this past week and um, was struck by how many billboards there are um, in the Chicago area blatantly advertising so-called gentlemen's clubs and uh, adult bookstores, one after the other, begging men to turn off the expressway and to engage in what the world thinks um, gives life. Uh, those are, of course, just blatant examples. Uh, every time you turn on the television, the world is begging you to, to uh, adopt its principles, uh, to adopt its materialism, its consumerism, its self-directed, self-promoting, self-protecting, self-centered life. That's the world we live in. And our flesh, unfortunately, uh, there's the remnant of sin within us still that is a willing ally to the world and the devil. So when the devil speaks his temptation, something within us responds to it. When the world invites us to adopt its principles, uh, there's something within us that, that, that thinks, that doesn't, that doesn't seem so bad. That, in fact, that, that seems good. That seems pleasant. And so we have, an, we have a traitor right, that lives with us, a willing ally and accomplice to both the world and the devil. And so if we're going to live in this spiritual war zone, we need to pay attention then to Peter's words, we need to arm ourselves. It's the one command in uh, these first six verses. It's in the, in the imperative. It is a command, arm yourself. Peter has this way of taking one central idea, one central command, and surrounding it with wonderful gospel truth, and that's what he does here in chapter 4 then as well. Um, and so I, I want you to hear this command tonight not as just one more thing to do on an impossibly long list of, uh, uh, that you already have of things that need to be done. Uh, boys and girls, if, you're, if your mom would bake your favorite cake or your favorite meal, and you can smell it when you walk into the house. And there it is on the table. And, and your mom says to you, I want you to eat that cake. Right? Who of you would say, Mom, I am just tired of the rules around here. Right? Enough of the commands already. My day's just been stock full of people telling me what to do. And you, nobody would say that, right? Because, because you want the cake. You delight in the cake. 
And so when Peter says to us, arm ourselves, he's not trying to get us to do just one more thing. He's urging us to do the thing that he's confident we want to do. He's confident we want to be done with sin. We want to, we want to fight the fight. We want to live a life that's pleasing to God. There's nothing more we would rather than to be done with sin completely altogether. We want to grow as the children of God. We want to be fruitful and effective. We want to love Him. We want to please our Father. And so Peter says, eat the cake. Arm yourself. Because we have a calling. And that calling is to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. What a magnificent calling for people made of dust like you and me. What an amazing calling. That we get to be the people in the world who are testimonies of the grace of God. And Peter calls us to arm ourselves in, not with the weapons of men, not with the weapons of good intentions, earnest promises, motivational self-talk, all, right? all those things are of no use whatsoever in this conflict. The enemies against us are too strong, but he commands us to arm ourselves with the wonderful reality of what Jesus Christ has accomplished on our behalf in his death and his resurrection. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to do what? To bring you to God. And he is sufficient to that work. Now that is the great victory, the great accomplishment that Peter wants us to be rooted in, to live in as we engage in this spiritual warfare. This, this evening we're going to first look at a foundational fact and then secondly at a fundamental change. A foundational fact and a fundamental change. Whenever we talk about sanctification, about growing in holiness, about being more obedient we have to start with a foundational fact, a foundational truth. Peter does exactly that, saying, Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh. Remember, he's just talked about what Christ has accomplished. He's pointing directly to 3 verse 18, Christ died for sins once for all. Since that's a reality, since that stands, since that's true, now we're going to talk about what it means. Paul does the same thing. When he's going to talk about living a God-honoring life, he speaks in Romans 12, 1, therefore, in view of God's mercies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And when you lose sight of God's mercies, you're not going to be able to live your life and offer your body as a living sacrifice. It's always in view of God's mercies. Colossians 3, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your minds on things above. The, the indicative of what God has accomplished always goes first before the imperative of how we are to live. And do you understand that Christianity is absolutely unique in this? No other religion has a 1 Peter 3.18. And so every other religion, when they, when they talk about living the good life, however they understand that, they just start with, you better strap it on. You better, you better get to work. No other religion begins its discussion of how to live an appropriate life by pointing to and atoning death. And we do. We get to, we get to start there. You see, no other religion has a foundational, redemptive act of God that stands 
No other religion has the truth that you were known by God before the foundation of the world. He knew your name and he gave you to Jesus and Jesus went to the cross and bearing your sin, your very sin because Jesus loved you and gave his life for you so he bore your sins in his body on the tree and that nothing now, you see, can separate you from the love of God that is yours in Jesus Christ. Those are the foundational facts, friends, that we must be rooted in and stand in if we're going to grow. It is a magnificent thing to be a Christian. That we get to hold on to these things, to believe these things. Every other religion will give instructions on what you need to do to be reconciled to God. The Bible, the gospel gives you instructions on what God has done to reconcile you to him. Christ died for sins once for all to bring you to God. It's an accomplished fact, an accomplished reality. You don't live the Christian life striving to be united with God. You live it because you've been reconciled to God. And so when Peter says, since, therefore, they're critically important words. Because they tell us that the most significant truth the most critical reality as we go about our life, as we, as we engage in spiritual warfare, the most critical truths are not what you personally experienced, but what Jesus personally experienced in your place and for your salvation. That's the effective, essential foundation. And so Peter now is, is he's just calling us to eat the cake relish what God has done. Arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. Uh, the, the word arm yourself, it's the word a commander would use to tell his soldiers to get ready for the battle. Strap on the, the gear. It's time to go to war. And that's exactly the word that, that Peter's using here. Put your armor on. It, it just struck me as I was studying this. that Isn't it true that it's, it's precisely here that we so often fail? That, that our greatest failures is, is before we ever get to the battle. We, we, we fail to arm ourselves. You see, that has to happen, obviously, before the enemy is on the doorstep. If the soldier waits for the, uh, the opposing army to break through, right, and, and, and to be there, if he waits to put his armor on until it's, uh, the action has started, well, he's waited too long. He's not going to be prepared. And so maybe the most critical issue for us as, as Christians is not what do you do in the moment of, tem of temptation. Maybe the, the question we should be asking is what do we do when we're not tempted? What are we doing when things are going fairly well? Or when at least there's a, there's a, a reprieve and, and the world and the flesh and the devil are not at that moment assaulting you. What do you do then? Because I think our tendency then is to coast and to take our ease and Peter says, no, don't, don't, don't do that. Arm yourself, friend. Arm yourself in preparation for the temptation that you know is going to come. We're still in the battle. And if we don't arm ourselves, you see, then we shouldn't be shocked or surprised when the devil's arrows find their mark. How could they not? We, we were in the battle unarmed. And so... So Peter, you know, he loves the, these people. He loves the church of Jesus Christ. And he knows, Peter knows what he's talking about. He knows how the, the temptations come. Peter has stumbled mightily in his life. This is no paragon of virtue, right? Peter has issues, fear of people issues particularly. 
And, and he stumbled over that idol several times in really embarrassing public ways. So he knows what he's talking about. And so he says, with, with love and grace, dear sister, dear brother, arm yourself. Arm yourself with what? With the same way of thinking. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilled over uh, this uh, with, uh, amongst commentators. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church taught that what this meant is that physical suffering is the best way to gain spiritual advantages. And so this, they took this verse as a call to asceticism and that if you, um, if you renounced um, any of the pleasures of, of this world... Uh, if you took a life of poverty, chastity, and intentional physical deprivation, uh, that, that, that you were then really serious about sanctification. Well, th that's clearly not what Peter is, is talking about. But he, he, he's not talking here in these verses about an ongoing process of suffering, but a definitive act of suffering. Both when he points to Christ... Um, Christ suffered once for all, so it's a definitive one-time act, and Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin or is done with sin. It's, it's a one-time thing that's happened. Whoever has suffered in the flesh. And Peter now is talking about how we live in the present based on a past fact. So, <clears throat> without getting um, caught up in all the debates, let's just go right to the spiritual principle here because I think it's fairly easy to grasp and it's a wonderful principle. The, the idea that Peter is, is reminding us of is that death breaks the power of sin. One of the benefits of being dead is that you don't sin anymore. Right? You don't, there's no pride, there's no greed, there's no lust, no envy, no anger, none of it. You can't possibly sin when you're lying in as a corpse, sitting there in the casket. Now, you know, we chuckle, but man, that's really good news. Aren't you, aren't you glad that there's such a thing as, as being done with sin? I hope that strikes you as, as a really positive thought. When it is done with it. I, man, I cannot wait for the day when, when, I, when it's done. All of it. Completely done, and I'm, I'm completely separated from it. See, that's what death does. It, it removes us from the power of sin. Well, Peter is, is reminding us that even though we're still in the battle, we're not in the battle hoping for a particular outcome. We are in the battle absolutely positive of a particular outcome. And that is because whoever has suffered in the flesh is done with sin. Now, now Peter is not saying here that you're done sinning. He's talking about sin as a status, a realm, a reign, a dominion, a kingdom in that sense. And Peter is saying when you, when you die... You are no longer in that kingdom. And what he's thinking, of course, here is, is the reality that, that when Jesus died on that cross, Jesus, well, he experienced this in his, own, in his own self, in his own body. He endured the penalty of sin. He bore the wrath of sin that sin deserves. He suffered the curse that's on sin. He paid the price of, that is, is due because of sin. And he destroyed sin. 
He destroyed it. John Owen has a great, a great uh, book title, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. That, that Jesus Christ has triumphed, destroyed, and, and what Peter is saying is that if you're united to Jesus Christ in faith, then what is true of Jesus Christ is true of you. You're not in the realm of sin anymore. You see, when, when, when Noah got in the boat, he's just talked about Noah. When Noah got in the boat, he left a certain world. It was a world where wickedness reigned. Every thought of the imagination of every man and woman and child was only evil always. And God grieved that he had made mankind because wickedness reigned. And then they got in the boat and the rain came down and the boat went floating and the world that was ceased to exist. And when Noah climbed out of that boat, it was a brand new reality. Brand new reality. That's exactly what's happened to you as a Christian. When you came to Jesus Christ, when you were united to Jesus Christ in faith, you entered into a brand new world. You left the realm, the reign, the dominion of sin. You, you have had a definitive break with it. Peter, you remember, we just read it. I'll look at here a little quicker. We just read it in, in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's what's happened to us. We're in a new world. We're in a new realm. All because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished. I remember talking to someone who was just grieving the loss of of their husband. And she said, death is so final. You know, if, if I could just see him one more time, just one more, one more embrace, one more kiss. But she can't. There's, a, there's an impenetrable barrier there called death. And you see, Peter wants you to realize and me to realize we've experienced death. It's nothing less than death that stands between us and what we used to be, where, where we once lived. And, and we can no more go back into that world, we can no more go back under that reign and the, into that realm than, than a dead person can, can go back. Into, into life again, or, or, or that this friend could go back to being with her husband. You see, something's happened. A definitive break. Jesus died for sins to unite us to God, and the testimony of the New Testament is that when Jesus died on that cross, the power the, of sin was broken, the penalty of sin was paid, the pollution of sin was washed away. We died with Christ and we died to sin, the realm of sin, the reign of sin. And let me tell you why this is such good news. Do you ever sin? <clears throat> yes, pastor. <clears throat> I sin. I sin in my attitudes. I sin in my thoughts. I sin in my, my actions. I sin in my words. I sin by not only the things that I do, I sin in all the things that I don't do. And some sins just seem to have a hold on me. They just seem to have a grip on me. And no matter the promises I make, no matter the efforts that I take, it just seems like I can't get rid of it. I can't shake it. Let me tell you the good news. <clears throat> the good news is that uh, you are far more sinful than you imagine. 
but you're not in the realm of sin. It's going to die. It's going to die. It can't, it has to die. Jesus Christ struck the fatal blow to sin as a realm and as a reign when he died in that cross and he nailed all the condemnation that was against you, nailed it to his cross. Death has nothing and sin has not, no hold on you. It, it, it just doesn't. Sure, the remnant is there. God uses it for his own ends. But it is going to, it's, it's, it's going to die. It, it's already been in principle its head has been cut off. And you don't belong to it anymore. It, you don't belong to that realm. You don't belong to that reign. Devil cannot say, yeah, this is one of mine. You are not one of his. You belong to Jesus Christ. And no one can change that. You didn't make it happen in the first place. You can't make it unhappen. Jesus Christ has a hold on you. One of the most moving things that I've experienced recently, we were down at the T4G conference. A bunch of the other kids were along and you got 10,000 men in this auditorium singing uh, this hymn, He Will Hold Me Fast. He will hold me fast. Why? For my Savior loves me so, and he will hold me fast. Great song. I don't think there was a dry eye in the place. And I asked myself, why does that song have such emotional power? And, and, and the answer is because we sense how weak we are and how fickle we are and if it were left to us we would fall we would fall away we would deny all of it but he will hold me fast for my savior loves me so he has loved me and he will love me till the end and he will hold me fast and that's the power in which we live. Jesus is not just our justification. Jesus is our sanctification. And Peter says, arm yourself with that truth. Arm yourself with that, with that understanding that you are no longer in the dominion of sin. You're not in the realm of sin. You've left that just like Noah left the, the, the world that was cursed and wicked and he left in, in that ark and came to a brand new world. And Jesus is the ark that has brought you there. And one day you're going to experience all the fullness and all the reality of it. Therefore... The reality, the consequences, that is a fundamental change then in our life. So as, verse 2, to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You could say, no longer for, what, for, for human passions, but for God's passions. We're in a new realm, under a new reign. We still have evil desires, but, but we're not defined by our evil desires. We don't live for evil desires. You see, when, you're, when you are dead in sin, you live for evil human desires. And it maybe doesn't seem evil to you. It might just seem normal behavior. But the truth is, what you live for is contrary to the will of God, contrary to the purposes of God. You are, you are running against the grain of the reason you were created every day because the old man rolls out of bed and says, what can I do today to satisfy me? What can I do today to satisfy my desires, to pursue my agenda, to go my way? That's just what the old nature is about. In fact, you're enslaved to that. You're in bondage to your passions. But when you come to Jesus Christ, there's a fundamental change. The new redeemed nature gets out of bed in the morning and says, God, help me to do what you want me to do today. 
I, wanna, I want my life to tell for Jesus. I want my life to matter for God's will, God's purposes. God, I, wa- I want to know what you, what you delight in, and, and I want to delight in the same thing. I want to live for the will of God. It's such a wonderful weapon to have in your hand when, when, when the devil's tempting you and the world's alluring you and your flesh is rising up just to say, no, I, I don't want to live for that anymore. I want to live for the will of God, you see, and, and that new desire, that new principle uh, leads to a different practice. Uh, Peter talks about how in the past, we used to live, when we were in our sin, we, we lived like the world lives. He says, for the time that is past, remember old world, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. You've spent plenty enough time living for yourself in this world already. Isn't that the truth? Wouldn't you say amen to that? That I've I've spent plenty enough time living for what what I want to do. The time for that suffices. It's enough. What do the Gentiles want to do? Living in sensuality? Is that what we see in the world today? Passions? Drunkenness? Orgies? These would be just uh, drinking uh, parties, drinking revelry, and, and Peter goes on and talks about drinking parties as well. Lawless idolatry? Is that, isn't that what the world wants to do? Isn't that what the world delights to do? Isn't that what the world lauds and promotes everywhere you look? And and Peter says, you've spent enough time doing that stuff. Plenty enough time doing that stuff. And with with respect to this, to this this lifestyle, this behavior, the, the, the people in the world are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. What do you mean you're, you're not going to that party or you don't watch that show or you don't, you don't participate in this activity? Why don't you laugh at that joke? And maybe if you're converted later in their life, they'll say, what's happened to you? You, you used to be such a fun guy. You used, to be, you used to be the life of the party girl. Who? What's happened to you? You used to be intellectually uh, astute. <clears throat> How in the world did you... Did you come to believe this stuff? Remember when Rosario Butterfield, Champagne was talking, she had a conference in, um, um, in Ada, in Redeemer Church, well, a while back now, but it's in her book, I think, as well. But when she, so here she is, she's the teacher of queer theory at, uh, professor of queer theory at Syracuse University, and, <clears throat> and she strikes up a friendship with a Christian, Kevin, Ken Smith, and, and she's starting to listen, and it's starting to make sense a bit to her, and her, her lesbian uh, friend, said to her, Rosario, I'm concerned about you. Something's, something's wrong. Something's happening. What's, what's, what's going on? Well, God was at work. That's what's going on. The world is surprised. And the world just chalks it off to, you're just fuddy-duddy. You're just ignorant. You're just whatever, self-righteous. And so they malign you. They don't understand that you simply don't have the heart for it anymore. I know I used to live like that. I know I used to. I don't anymore. I don't want to do those things. I want to to live for Jesus Christ. So they will malign you. 
If you have any doubts about this, just go online to any, any um, blog that, that talks about um, what's going on in the, culture, in the culture today and look for, for people talking about Christians' participation in that. Particularly, look, you can just go to any of the um, uh, more progressive online magazines or blogs and then look for some discussion about Christians. And it is just abuse, abuse, abuse. Why, would, why should we pay ignorant, backwards, oppressive people, why should we pay them any mind? Why should they have any rights at all? Friends, that's what's coming. They malign you. They were maligning the church then. But Peter reminds us, verse 6, verse 5, they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. When you see people malign the church, malign Jesus Christ, malign the truth, don't, don't, our, our instinct is to, to protect ourselves. Maybe our instinct is to be indignant. Just be, just be sad. Just grieve. They're going to give account to the God who judges the living and the dead. And all those foolish, malignant words are going to be, are going to come back on their head. I, I came across a quote, maybe I've used it with you already. But just thinking about Judgment Day. Think about Judgment Day and it was from an old Puritan. He, he said, be ready, when you, when you go to Judgment Day, be ready to face him who knows how to ask questions. Be ready to face him who knows how to ask questions. Why did you say that? Why did you do that? What did you mean by that? That's judgment. When you are just exposed before the holiness of God, and, and, Paul, and Peter just, right, he lives in a world that maligns the church. Calls the church all, I mean, not just calls them names, uh, completely misunderstands, uh, charges them with, with cannibalism because they eat and drink the body of Jesus Christ, charges them with, uh, as atheists because they deny all the gods uh, of the world of that day, says that they're incestuous because they marry their brothers and their sisters in the Lord. I mean, it, every vile charge that could be leveled against the church is leveled against them, and then they're imprisoned, and, and they're going to be thrown to lions as sport. People pay money to come and see the Christians being assaulted by the wild animals. And Peter says, just remember Judgment Day. Not, not, with, not, with, uh, not with glee. They're going to face a holy God, and they're going to give an account. And then he closes with this. We'll wrap with this. Verse 6. This is why the gospel was preached, the good news of God was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. You see, the gospel is preached to Gentiles. The gospel is preached to people who are in love with all the wrong things. The gospel is preached to rebels and uh, people who hate God, who live for themselves, but the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. And I think Peter is thinking here of people who are, uh, have already passed on. And he, and he says that though judged in the flesh the way people are, we're going to die. Right? Our body still in sense exists under the curse that exists on the world. And that, that's going to happen to us. But even though that happens, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life. And he gives life to those who come to him. To live in the spirit the way that God does. Everlasting life. Sinless life. A life in full communion with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the life 
that we will experience forever. And then our bodies will be raised, as you know, and we will live with the Lord forever. Friend, let me just ask you tonight, are, are you tired? If you're tired, know that you have, you're going to win. You, you are the winner. I, I've used this illustration before. I just love this illustration. Um, Bruce Willis, uh, it's the movie The Kid. <clears throat> Where, remember, the, 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 the ten, is it the 10-year-old version of himself shows up? Um, and, the, and, and, and the kid is so disappointed in Bruce Willis, who's 40 years old now. He says his 40th birth, birthday, and he's a loser, right? He doesn't have a dog, doesn't have a wife. And, and, this, and this little 10-year-old kid is rebuking him uh, for being such a loser. And, um, and at the end of the movie, and this is a spoiler, so if you uh, want to see the movie, you know, I guess close your ears. But at the end of the movie, he sort of, Bruce Willis figures it out. And at 40 years old, he, he finds, he, he connects with this woman who he should have married a long time ago. And, and, um, and they see their future, and they, and, and they have this beautiful plane, and they got a dog named Chester, and, uh, and there's a wife, and, and the little kid, the 10-year-old version of, of uh, Bruce Willis and, and the 40-year-old version, they're standing on the runway, maybe you've seen this, and they're, they're laughing and they're, they're jumping and they're dancing and they're saying, we're not losers. We're not losers. Man, I watch that. I could just cry. Because don't you feel like a loser? I mean, in truth, when you sin, when you fail, when you run smack dab into yourself one more time, Jesus wants you to know you're not losers. You are more than conquerors through him who, who loves us. Look to your future. You see what Christ has accomplished in the past. We stand there. We live today trusting that and, and with a firm confidence that a day is coming, friends, when we're going to be done, completely done. We're already free from the reign and the realm of sin. One day we're going to be done from every vestige of it. It's going to happen. It's yours in Jesus Christ. Let's live as though it were true. Amen. Oh, God in heaven, I thank you so much. For the gospel, I thank you for the encouragement that it gives. What an amazing thing that we are not dealt with as our sins deserve, but we are, we are dealt with according to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That in his victory over death, we have entered into victory and no one can take us out of it. That we are secure. You will hold us fast. Oh God, I thank you. We don't, we don't deserve this. Forgive us for not believing it as we ought and trusting in it. Forgive us for not living according to it. I pray, Lord, that we would go into this week with a renewed zeal to live for Jesus. A renewed confidence that we belong to him. And even when we sin, even when we, we fail, all the gospel truth stands. And that in Jesus Christ, we can say no to the world and the flesh and the devil. Because we don't belong to it anymore. And it doesn't belong to us. It has no rightful place in our life. And we don't live for those things anymore. We can tell our pride and our lust and our covetousness, our anger and our greed, our, our impatience. We, we can tell it all to get lost. It doesn't, it's, not, it's not part of, of who we are. 
It's not, it's not what is ours in Christ. We've been set free. And so, God, I pray that you encourage our hearts that you would, Lord, give us the joy of a pure conscience as we go into the week ahead. And I pray, Lord, we would experience the power of God to love, uh, to trust you, to say no to sin, and to say yes to all that is God's will. And to you belong the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.